This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to a very special edition of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, bringing you the latest insights into the world of investing, stock markets, personal finance and more. Joining me this week is AJ Bell's Head of Investment Analysis, Laith Kalaf. Yeah, hi Dan. So come on, tell us why it's such a special edition of the podcast. Come on, Laith, this should have been on your calendar at home. We're celebrating 200 episodes of the podcast, which is fantastic. Wow. Yeah. So Laura Suta and I launched this four years ago, kind of as a way to keep the public up to speed on developments in the world of money and markets. And so, you know, we're really pleased that it's found a wide audience and that so many of you are listening regularly to the podcast. So thank you very much for all your support. And here's to the next 200 episodes and more. Yeah, definitely a memorable milestone there. And I guess to celebrate, we've got a very special podcast, three special guests on the show this week, Dan. So we've got Laura talking to the um, Chief Executive of uh, NSNI, National Savings and Investments, um, uh, about premium bonds and savings savings rates. And you're also talking to Polo Capital's Ben Rogoff, I believe, talking about kind of if fangs have had their day and how he's kind of coping with a pretty terrible year for tech stocks. Yeah, that's right. And I'll also have a chat with Artemis fund manager, Rebecca Young, about why anyone with a 60-40 equity bond portfolio shouldn't panic about the bond component failing to provide support this year. Yeah, and we'll also be exploring news about Manchester United Football Club um, potentially being put up for sale, what that means for shareholders. We'll also be taking a look at Disney as well, why it's brought back its old chief executive. But first... Let's take a look at how stocks, currencies and bonds have performed over the past week. Yeah, so um, it's been, you know, I think a kind of, I'd probably characterise the kind of week as, as sort of treading water. There was a bit of a dip in markets at the end of last week and we've had, you know, a fairly healthy re- recovery, a bounce back since then. So FTSE 100 up about 1.5%. Um, um, in the last few days, back up trading around the 7,500 mark. So if you zoom out a little bit, up around five or six percent over the net last month or so. So, um, you know, pretty, pretty decent November compared to, to October. Um, and, you know, it's, it's similar across other markets as well. Um, um, the US, um, the S&P 500 showing a, a similar pattern. I think with the S&P 500, one of the one of the kind of big factors um, that the markets are kind of waiting for is the Fed minutes. So these are the minutes of the Federal Reserve, the central bank in the United States, uh, which are due out. Is it tonight, Dan? I think they're coming out. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so obviously we're recording this on the Wednesday. So by the time you listen to it, they'll all have been published. So you'll already have the news. Um, we're obviously flying a little bit blind. But, uh, you know, I think the markets have... I've been waiting for that bit of news. I think, um, you know, I think the whole sort of S&P 500 as a whole seems to be trading based on um, this idea of the Fed pivot, which is, um, you know, the, the idea that some at some point the, the Fed is is just going to, um, you know, take its foot off the brake in terms of, of interest rate rises. Um, uh, and at that point, markets are going to cheer and everything's going to be fantastic again. Um, so, um, you know, I was um, quite actually shocked to see um, uh, it, it was a few weeks back when um, the the uh, the kind of numbers, the U- inflation numbers came out of the, U- the US, which were uh, lower than expected. And it was just one month's figure. But the S&P 500 rose by 5% in a day, which seems like a phenomenal amount to me to rise in one day. Um, and, you know, simply on the back of kind of one 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 data point. Um, but I guess, you know, that kind of highlights the kind of how important markets, um, particularly in the US, are, are thinking this kind of pivot is. So keep keep an eye out for those. As, as you say, Dan, uh, uh, everyone listening to this will be able to, to kind of read all about them by the time uh, they're listening to this podcast. So, you know, we have seen this kind of pattern before where kind of markets get ahead of themselves um, and uh, and then the kind of Fed kind of pours cold water on the party and says, no, we're still pretty keen on on raising interest rates because we think inflation is a problem. So, um, you know, that may 
may play out uh, again. I think as well as the kind of stock market, one of the interesting things that's, that's, that's been happening over, over the last kind of few weeks really is um, the dollar falling back. And again, that's linked to the fact that perhaps the markets are expecting um, the, ed, the, the Fed sorry, to, to, start, um, to start kind of easing back on interest rates. Um, uh, rises, so we've seen we've seen that the the dollar paired back. Um, you know the euro is now back above parity uh, with the dollar. Um, also worth looking at the pound, I think, because the pound's doing reasonably well. Um, not 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 often recently we've been saying that, but now closing in on one twenty again against the dollar, one dollar twenty. Um, you know, a level that it's not really seen since August, back up to to one point one six euros against the euro. Um, so we've also had a little boost uh, today. We're recording on, as you say, Dan, uh, Wednesday the 23rd. Had a little bit of a boost today as well from the fact that um, the, um, the, the the UK Supreme Court um, has basically ruled that um, you know if, Scot- if the Scottish government wants a, a new indie ref, a new referendum on independence, then they're going to have to go through Westminster to get it. So um, the pound also, you know, looking looking a lot a lot healthier than it was and it kind of feels like the kind of mayhem uh, that we saw in the wake of the mini budget has kind of now gone away certainly in terms of 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 market prices because the pound is back up to where it was before um the mini budget um and and also gilt yields um which which um you know rose significantly after the mini budget um, have have now fallen back to to, to to levels that they were before that event um, as well. So it's all kind of fading into the past, like a sort of a bad dream. I think if you if you had to take out a mortgage in that sort of period, then you're probably um, still not very happy about that. But it feels like like market pricing is just getting back back to normal. So I guess that's the market picture. I thought it's just also worth just touching on. Um, some news that we saw from the uh, the OECD, um, basically um, a, a fairly gloomy um, economic forecast uh, for the UK. Another one um, you might you might well be saying. So the the OECD is forecasting that the UK is going to be the worst performing economy in the G20. That's 20, you know, 20, 20 major nations of the world. It's going to be the worst performing economy for the next two years, apart from Russia, which we know um, has, is obviously kind of subject to, 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 to huge sanctions upon it. So, um, you know, that follows similarly gloomy forecasts that we've had from, you know, the Bank of England and also from, from the OBR. Um, so I think it's probably you know fair to point out that the OECD also said that they expected growth to slow down in most places. I, I think interestingly as well, they said that um, they're expecting Germany um, to uh, the German economy to shrink next year as well. So the UK is, is forecast to shrink uh, by 0.4% next year, the German economy to shrink by 0.3%. So although the UK is, yes, the second worst in the G20, it's not that far behind Germany. And, you know, that's really just just a rounding error. Uh, and I think that's probably the, the kind of the other point to bear in mind with all of these economic forecasts is that they are prone to error. A lot of it depends on the, the factors, the variables that um, these um, you know, various bodies are feeding into their economic models. Um, and given how you know, unpredictable and variable things are at the moment, you know, many of those could, could turn out to be um, to be to be you know fairly fairly off the pace, and that could mean that the the kind of forecasts themselves uh, are also blown slightly out of the water. So I think it's probably not a great time to be to be you know lending too much weight to the kind of specifics of uh, of the economic forecast. But certainly we seem to have you know a range of forecasters now saying that the the UK is in for um, a pretty bleak time. I'm afraid over the next couple of years. I think we've managed 199 episodes of this podcast without talking about football. So, I think isn't that it's all right. right? Yeah, I think it's okay that we talk about football now. <laughs> so, um, obviously, we're referring to news that Manchester United uh, owners might put the, the club up for sale. Now, this is relevant to investing because these shares trade on the um, in the US stock market. I mean, Laith, you're you're a West Country man. Are, are you Bristol Rovers or Bristol City? 
Um, I'm Bristol rugby, actually, <laughs> so <laughs> embarrassingly. Um, so I live I live very, very close to, to the Rovers ground. So I'll, I'll go with the home ground. But um, yeah, I'm afraid I'm, a, I'm an overball follower. Well, I think this is one of the key things with people who absolutely love football. They, they would look at um, you know opportunities to invest in a, in a football club and of course, Manchester United is so well known around the world. You you kind of on that basis, you think you know really big brand. Um, you know, it, it seems to always it's got this great reputation over the years that it would have been a good investment. But actually, you know, it's been far from it. The news that it's potentially up for sale did trigger an eleven percent share price rise. But even after you factor that in, this the shares in Manchester United are still down thirty percent over five years um so i mean i guess you just have to take a step back and say what what what, what's going on here why is it not been delivering and i I guess you just need to ask anyone who's a a supporter of that club um they've been wanting the glazers to to sell for for years you know the club hasn't won the premier league since 2013 stadiums in a bit of a shabby state company's got lots of debt so it needs to invest in the ground it needs to invest in better players if it wants to win the title again but I think perhaps the reason why there are some investors who still stuck with it through these sort of difficult times is that ticketing is only a really small proportion of the revenues relative to um, the TV money and the rollout of global merchandise franchises. So, so really, I think that's that's the sort of the, the sort of the key attraction here. So, but I think if you know, history does suggest that football clubs don't do very well because you know, they have cash that comes in from sports and tv rights cash that goes out for transfer fees wages and stadium costs and really there's just nothing left so um you know i think manchester united is an interesting one i'm going to be hopefully talking to um quite a high profile investor in football club very soon and we'll have that on the podcast um if i can manage to pull it off but um but yeah (laughs) (laughs) so obviously you know like you say as a rugby and probably as a cricket fan yourself it's uh um you know what? What do you take about the Manchester United's news? You think it probably just passes you over, and you've <laughs> no so, interest. Well, well, no, I think I, th- I think probably two things. I think there's just a, you know, there's a very sort of big um, cliff edge, isn't there, in terms of success and failure? For instance, if you're if you're getting into the Champions League or, or kind of winning the league, there's there's kind of a big cliff edge. I think you know, kind of over that over that boundary. The other thing that strikes me is that their employees are quite expensive, aren't they? You know, the ones that play on the pitch. So <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't entirely surprise me that there's not a huge amount of money left over um, after after paying those huge salaries and, and transfer fees. But I'm, I'm glad we've got football um, on the pod, Dan. Hopefully, one day we'll have rugby. Maybe maybe by the time we hit 400 we'll have rugby we'll work on that so dan um stuff going on at disney as well chief executive is back um fairly un- unusual for a company to get its its chief exec back what's going on there yeah i mean so february 2020 bob shapek um became the boss of disney and he, he kind of walked straight in um the disney plus streaming platform had just been launched um, it was all looking quite good. Of course, but then weeks later, COVID struck. So his sort of early days running the business was all about coping with sort of the global crisis here. What do you do about all the theme parks suddenly had to shut down? But on the other hand, you've got rapid growth in people watching Disney+. Plus. I think what's happened since then is that you know, as the theme parks have sort of started to reopen, really jacked up the prices. There's lots of unhappy customers saying, can't afford to go here anymore. And when they do go there, there's lots of problems with the rides keep breaking down or they've got maintenance. And then there's a lot of, you know, there's reports that staff are not very happy. Um, there's been some sort of senior executives have been fired, um, talking about having to move people from California to Florida to work. So, And then you know, I think the, the big thing was the recent um, quarterly results fell short of expectations for sales and profits. So I just think that, you know, investors probably looked at this, the boards looked at it, you know, the share price is down quite a bit uh, under his, you know, Bob Chapek's um, sort of leadership. So they brought back Bob Iger. He, he was there for a very long time and he, he said he'll do two years, try and steady the ship. But I think what you've got here is try and find a way to make Disney Plus profitable, um, perhaps focus a bit more on the quality experience and not sort of um, the quantity churning anything out. Just, I think they need to just bring a bit more of the magic back. But you know, as a business, you know, if you've got 
these huge leisure um, facilities you know, in various parts of the world. You've got this very, very, you know, already very quickly established streaming platform and all the other things about the, the, the brand strength that comes across the Disney estate. Um, one would hope that there's hopefully, you know, you can get this company back on track fairly quickly. But I, I think overall, um, perhaps people are surprised at the pace at which they brought back the old person. Um, but, you know, you know, positive reaction from the stock markets. Investors obviously you know, hopeful that things are going to look a lot better from here. Yeah, must always be good if you're chief executive, sort of walking back into a role or walking into a role and seeing a share price, share price rise. Um, um, and and I guess equally, if you if you see if you leave and, and you see a share price rise, then it's pretty demoralising. But uh, let's let's turn our attention now to a bit of personal finance. So, NSNI is is a, an institution in the UK which many will be familiar with. You know, at, a, at most, at some point, most people have probably used one of its savings products or bought one of its bonds for for perhaps themselves or for for a love a loved one. You know, clearly, premium bonds are the kind of you know the, the most famous product. But the the government backed provider also has a range of savings accounts as well. So, how exactly does NSNI handle the current savings rate war and decide? what rates to set. Well, Laura caught up with the chief executive, Ian Ackerley, to discuss those topics and whether she's ever been lucky with premium bonds. So I thought it would be good to start with a very broad question of how does NSNI work? Because I think lots of people know that it's government backed and that it's a safe place for their savings, but don't really understand how that actually works and how that link with the government works. Okay, well, look, thanks very much indeed, um, Laura. There's, um, NSNI has a really long history, and we go back to 1861 and the Post Office Savings Bank. And over the period since then, we've evolved into a business that does fundamentally three things for government. One of, first one of which is that we provide administrative services for other government departments. So we're the people who provide the accounts behind, for example, help to save and help to buy. Um, we also deliver specific policy products, and I'm sure we're probably going to talk about that uh, later, things like the Green Savings Bond, which is something which we launched about a year ago. And the third thing we do is we raise cost-effective finance for government. And we do that through selling a range of savings products to ordinary customers in the UK. And that includes our very famous uh, premium bonds, which have been around for now over 65 years. Uh, we have about 22 million customers in premium bonds and over 110 billion, and I did get that right, 110 billion pounds invested, which is a simply huge amount of money. Um, and so we sell those to retail customers. The way that actually works, um, and it's also worth just saying it with respect to those products, there, there's also a range of other products alongside that. There are uh, fixed-term products, there are instant access products, we sell... ISAs, uh, we sell um, just, just ordinary savings accounts as well. And all of those come with a 100% treasury guarantee. So unlike money in other savings accounts that are subject to the financial services compensation scheme cap of £85,000, every penny that's invested with national savings and investments uh, is guaranteed by the government. So that's the really good thing about it. So how do we, you know, how does it come about? What do we do? So every year we have a conversation with the Treasury about how much money they need us to raise. And that's really based on how much money the government needs that year. So each year they do the arithmetic, they look at what they think is going to be their income from taxation and other sources, how much they're going to spend. And that then leaves a gap between the two, which is the amount of money they need to borrow, which is kind of like anybody really. It just you know, how do you bridge that gap? And they have two options then. They can either borrow that from big institutions like pension funds and banks, or alternatively, they can borrow it through NSNI, through our sale of retail savings products. Uh, and that's how it works. And then we agree uh, that target. And then it's up to us, uh, broadly speaking, how we, which products we offer and how we price those. So that pricing, I guess, is key to how attractive those products are. And so at the moment, we're in an environment where interest rates have been rising. The savings market is getting pretty competitive. And NSNI itself has raised rates across different products or on the premium bond ones that you talked about. You've made the prize fund um, a bit better, made the chance of winning mm. those prizes a bit better. How do you decide how to set rates? How much of it is kind of 
okay, our competitors have raised rates, so we should, and how much of it is external factors? So um, what we have to do whenever we're setting the rates on products, we've really got to balance the interests of three things. One, you know, the return to customers. You know, so how can we put an attractive enough rate that customers actually want to come and choose to invest with us? Secondly, um, what's that going to cost the taxpayer? Because ultimately, it's the taxpayer that's paying the interest. And thirdly, we don't want to set rates that are going to disrupt the market. It would be very easy, given the scale of NSNI, because we have over £200 billion invested with us. It would be very easy for us if we set rates at a very high level for us to begin to disrupt the market. And for that reason, therefore, we try and balance those off against each other. Every day, we track the money that comes in and the money that goes out from NSNI, and we look and forecast what does that mean for our target, and are we likely to achieve our target for the year? And then we'll adjust pricing in order to be able to make sure we come within that range. So this year, we've got a target to raise somewhere between three and nine billion pounds for the government, uh, which is a pretty big number. Uh, and that's fairly typical for us. Last year, we raised 4.4 billion. So it's not unusual for us to raise that sort of money. During the COVID crisis uh, in 2020, we raised 38 billion in oh, only wow. six months, which is a... <laughs> which is a, a very big number, an extraordinary number in extraordinary circumstances. But that was roughly equivalent to what the government spent on the fellow scheme during that period as well. So it's, it's really nice to be able to make that sort of big contribution. So it's always about looking in the market, looking at what competitors are doing, looking at how our savers are reacting to our proposition at the time, and trying to strike that happy balance between not disrupting the market not paying our customers too much interest such that the taxpayer is overpaying for the money it's receiving. And presumably, like anyone in any job, you don't always get that exactly right. At certain points, you must set the rates to be too competitive and see far bigger influx of money than you wanted and vice versa. We're continuously having to adjust rates. I mean, whenever you're in a market, particularly as we are at the moment where rates are rising, it's very difficult because once you fix a rate, clearly competitors move around you. And as competitors become more competitive, and, and we don't by and large try and be at the top of the market. And therefore, very quickly, we can fall down the lead tables. And if we do that, then we'll look to raise our rates, um, particularly if we begin to see existing customers are withdrawing their money from our funds. But it's all the time about trying to strike that balance. And you know, sometimes they're a bit high and they, they may come down. Uh, right now at the moment, you know, we're trying to get a steady pattern of relatively modest changes in order to be able to keep us up with the market. A few years ago, we tended to make very few changes, but they tended to be big jumps. We've changed our strategy uh, relatively recently to try and make it uh, less smaller steps, but more frequent steps when we change the rates. And so the latest um, product that you guys launched was the Green Savings Bond. Can you just give a bit of an overview of, of what that is and how that ties in with the kind of government green goals? OK, um, Green Savings Bond, uh, really proud to have launched this product. We launched it just over a year ago. It's a world first. It's the world's first sovereign green savings bond. Um, and we launched that at the request of the government. Uh, they came to us with a view that as part of their overall green initiative that they have, um, that they wanted to be able to offer ordinary customers the opportunity to help fund the work, uh, the green projects, which the, uh, the government is doing. And so uh, we constructed a product. It has a sister product, which is sold to banks and institutions called uh, Green Guilds. And between those two, uh, we raise the money that goes into a whole series of different projects, which are things like uh, green transportation, um, uh, green energy, a whole bunch of different projects, and which are designed to help us achieve the overall government objectives of, of becoming a, you know, a net zero uh, country in due course. And how do you set the rates with a, a new product like that? Because... Um... I, I will freely admit myself, 
I was a little critical of the initial launch rate that you had with the green savings bonds. And I think that was then slightly reflected in, in the sales of them. And subsequently, with the further issues of it, you, you've raised the interest rate. But I acknowledge, while I criticise from the sidelines, I acknowledge that it must be very difficult to set a rate on a new product like that that's also operating in a, in a niche. Yes, it is. And it's quite a challenge when, as I say, it's a world first. So there isn't any other product to compare it with. Um, so there's a number of things we did when we came to, to pricing it. It's a three year fixed term product, um, which is very similar to a product that we sell already. So amongst the things we did was one look at how that sold and how that normally performs in the market. How do does our three year product normally behave and perform compared to competitors three year products? Uh, we looked at what other players in the green segment are doing and the rates that they were charging. Um, and we also did market research and we spoke to potential customers and tried to test to see what they would be likely um, to invest at, you know, what sort of rate would it require. Um, but it's been a, a very dynamic market, obviously, against the context recently of rapidly rising rates. We have twice now increased the rate. Um, so it's now currently on sale with an interest rate of 3%, um, which is competitive. Uh, as I said at the beginning, we don't aim to be market leading. So we're comfortable with, with where that is in the market. And we've increased the rate before in order to be able to keep it in that sort of roughly competitive place. So it's a lot about looking at that research, looking at what competitors are doing. And all the time, just as with our other products, trying to strike that balance between a rate that will be attractive to customers, that is fair for the taxpayers who are paying it, and also that isn't going to be disruptive for the market. And you made reference to the sales of it. I think um, it's a relatively small savings market, the green savings market. And when you look at the amount that we have sold compared to the amount that's been sold by some very long-standing players in the market, you'll see actually we've already outsold some of them. Um, so, you know, I'm comfortable with where that sits in the market. I'm, I'm comfortable with the success of the product. It's a learning curve for us. Yeah. And the only way we can learn is by setting a rate and seeing how it behaves, just as it is with the rest of the book. And so we've obviously mentioned NSNI's long history since it started to now the banking and saving space has changed dramatically. Um, I imagine back when it started, it was kind of paper passbooks that you had to take into a branch. And now you can do everything by downloading an app in a couple of minutes and setting up a bank account. So obviously NSNI has to move with the times and adopt more of a kind of digital model. How are you guys doing that? Um, it's a really good question. And you're absolutely right. We have to move with the times. And in fact, um, when I was a child, I had premium bonds, which were little bits of paper. Um, I had a NSNI savings account, which was a little metal um, money box, um, which you could roll up notes and shove them in the little hole or put coins in the little slot. Um, so we did. We used to have accounts that ran like that. The world has moved on. Customer expectations have moved on. And therefore, we've had to move with them. And so we have grown. Uh, and embrace technology have gone ahead. Uh, our retail director is proud to say that she joined us in order to set up a call center, which in those days was innovative and leading edge. Um, that was quite some time ago. And we've obviously had to go down the digital trend. So we have our website and we're building apps. Um, the key here is that we have to attract a range of customers, both those who are digitally enabled, who really like the idea they're used to, frankly, doing everything online. And if we didn't have an online proposition, then we wouldn't be able to attract those customers because they wouldn't want to fill in a form, communicate by phone or communicate by paper. But we also have to recognize when we're doing this that we've also got a really loyal customer base, some of whom have been with us for decades. Um, and I'm you know, really proud and really grateful for them because they are often the people who have most of the uh, investments that we, that we hold. So they're really valuable customers too. So whenever we're doing it, we're trying to strike the right balance between offering something really attractive for those who want a digital journey and also making sure that we've got still got ways of customers being able to interact with us who don't want to go down that digital route. So we've still got a contact center. 
where people can phone us up and talk to us. And we've still got means of people who haven't got access to digital to be able to continue to buy and enjoy our products. So it is about trying to strike a balance between those two. Um, but you know, it's interesting because you know, a lot of older customers are also very digitally enabled too. So it's, it isn't necessarily something that's age related. And it is quite interesting that during COVID, you know, I got a number of letters from customers saying how grateful they were for being able to have their premium bond prizes paid directly into their bank accounts, because that meant they didn't have to go out, they didn't have to go and stand in the cold, and they didn't have to go and stand in a branch with lots of people who may or may not have had COVID. So it's quite interesting, you know, the digital journeys sometimes appeal to people that you, you might not think would, would like them. And obviously the cost of living crisis is something that we're all experiencing and we're seeing fill the headlines at the moment. Um, and that's inevitably going to affect the savings levels of the UK public. Is that something that, that you're aware of being one of the one of the big institutions that holds a lot of savings for UK customers? Are you already seeing withdrawals from kind of picking up as a result of people having to use their savings to pay for things? And, and also, is it something that you're factoring into the kind of funding levels for this year? We, as I said earlier on, we see and watch the money going in and out every day. And there's lots of reasons why people take money out of their savings accounts, sometimes because, <clears throat> excuse me, they're buying something very big, like a house, sometimes just because they've been saving up for something, they've now got the budget to do it and so they'll go and spend it so we do watch it all the time and therefore it's naturally something which uh, influences our pricing because clearly you know if more money flows out then we've got to attract more money to come in to be able to hit our target so um, we are very aware of it and it is a difficult time for people but we do want to enable people to save if they can and so you know, one of the things we've done is try to make sure our products are as accessible as possible. So the Green Savings Bond does have a minimum investment of £100, but about five years ago, we reduced the minimum investment for premium bonds from £100 to 25 And we did that to make it easier for those people who had less than £100 but wanted to buy premium bonds, they could do that. And when you look at things like our instant access direct savings account, um, the direct saver has a minimum investment of a pound. So for those customers who do have money to save, there is a great opportunity to do that across a range of our products. And I think yeah, that's, that's what's really important is to recognize, yes, there are some people who are finding it very hard. Some are finding it easier and can save a little. And there are those fortunate ones who can continue to save. And we've got plenty of products for them as well. Final question is, why haven't I won the premium bonds jackpot yet? What am I doing wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I've held premium bonds since I was tiny. I was given my first premium bond uh, very soon after I was born. And uh, I love the product. It's one of the reasons why I work for NSMI um, is because I had an affinity with the brand and with the proposition. I think premium bonds are amazing. The fact that we have around 22 million customers and over 110 billion invested is an extraordinary amount of money, an extraordinary number of customers. Um, we continue to adjust the prize fund rate um, to keep the product attractive. And we continue to change the odds of winning it. So just recently, we improved the prize fund rate to 2.2% and we improved the odds to 24,000 to one. Um, which was a relatively modest improvement uh, compared to the 24,500 to one that it was before, but we've made more bigger prizes available. So there's still two £1 million prizes, and they are still there, um, but we now have more prizes in the middle range that are even more attractive for people to win. Uh, every premium bond has an equal chance of winning, and I'm really pleased to say um, when I see the press release each month that announces the winners, it often shows you how little that people have invested and often how old those premium bonds are. So anybody who still owns a premium bond from when they were launched over 65 years ago, every month they still have as much chance of winning as somebody who bought a premium bond just last month. So there's hope for me yet then? There is always hope for every customer who's got premium bonds. And uh, I think that's the fun of the product. I think that's why so many people continue to buy it and why it's continued to be a success because 
uh, every bond brings that opportunity that maybe one day, maybe one day there'll be a big prize for you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to hear more about our savings institution of NSNI. Thank you very much indeed. Love to talk. Now, for a long time, technology shares were the shining stars of investment portfolios. Then the world turned on its head in late 2021, and tech stocks have subsequently been in freefall. Ben Rogoff runs the Polar Capital Technology Trust. Their shares are down 30% this year. Dan recently caught up with Ben to get his thoughts on the mega cap stocks, which had been driving the market. Whether he's taken advantage of this year's sell-off in tech shares to buy some new names for the portfolio, and which areas of the market he avoids. Let's hear what they have to say. So Ben, after leading the markets for years, mega cap tech stocks like Microsoft and Amazon were a real disappointment to investors in 2022. Does that surprise you? Do you think that the fangs have had their moments in the sun? It's time perhaps for a different group of stocks to generate the best returns for tech investors in the coming years. Well, thanks. And um, it's a good question. Uh, and it's something that we've obviously been grappling with too. You know, the, the performance, you're right, disappointing. It's been a tough year for tech. Um, but actually, when you look at the, the fang or whatever we want to call them these days, um, actually, many of them have held up pretty well um, and have performed, I would say, in aggregate better than the average tech stock. Um, and in fact, in aggregate, large cap US tech stocks have performed better than the small cap uh, equivalent. So, um, but yes, if you drill down into those names, you know, definitely disappointments at Meta. Uh, companies sort of had a loss of signal from Apple, from iOS users. They've pivoted to the metaverse just in time for investors to fall out of love with the metaverse. And they've struggled with TikTok as a competitor. Amazon, also some some, some challenges uh, post-COVID there. And more recently, some slowing growth at AWS, which has been problematic. But, you know, in contrast, actually, Alphabet or Google has performed pretty well and delivered decent numbers against the backdrop of a tough advertising market and some hair on the last quarter, but pretty pretty good overall during 2022. Apple has also performed very well, you know, robust demand for iPhones, App Store holding up and, you know, so far at least demonstrating pricing power. Um, Microsoft too, a, another, you know, strong performer, relative outperformance. The business has held up very well. And again, at the margin, you might be a little bit upset about some of the weaker trends at Azure, um, but, but, but overall not too bad. I think the broader question, however, about FANG or FAMMAG is that in the end, it's an acronym. It's, it's, it's an acronym. In the same way that BRIC was an acronym for investing in a bunch of countries. And of course, in the end, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, if you've got, if you pick the Russian stocks out of the BRIC acronym, you would have performed very differently to the Indian stocks. And I think that's probably how we think about FANG going forwards, which is in the end, um, it's never a great idea to invest in a group of companies. You know, if money flows from the controversial to the obvious, then by the time they become an acronym, it, it's pretty obvious. So we just think that the performance of those stocks and our attitude to them um, should really just mirror or hopefully anticipate the differences of performance of those their respective businesses rather than them as a group and then sorry stepping back even further um, do we think that the mega caps are the right way to play tech more broadly and I would say that you know we're excited about themes where penetration rates are somewhere between five and thirty percent and so if you happen to be a big cap playing in electric vehicles where penetration rates might be at 10%, that's fine. If you happen to be a mega cap playing in advertising where penetration is north of 50%, that's probably less exciting to us. So we tend to try and gravitate to where the penetration rates are in that sort of the, the um, adoption sweet spot. But I would just lastly caveat that the really exciting stuff, the stuff that will drive tech on the 10-year view are things like artificial intelligence. And together with cloud, that's a theme or their themes where scale matters a lot and and that again makes it that trickier to entirely part ways with those mega caps where are the best opportunities in tech for you now then well, there's always great opportunities. That's the beauty of looking at one of the most dynamic sectors with a very broad um, sort of array of sub-themes and obviously companies. So right now, like 2015-16, the market is rotating away from next generation stocks, um, particularly those that have um, earlier stage financials might be a nice way to put it. And they're trying to buy, you know, solid alternatives. So we're, we're, we're happy, although we're conscious of um, the risks associated with this move, to lean more heavily on um, those next generation companies. We've been slightly careful about our exposure to the highest growth cohorts within areas like payments and software because a year ago, uh, and we wrote about this extensively, we, we called out the fact that they we, we were really not willing to underwrite the growth expectations that the market had baked into some pretty fruity valuations. So more recently, what we've been doing is leaning back into that group within software, within payments. We've added companies like Bill.com, uh, which helps software to help companies automate uh, 
accounts receivables, account payable processes. We've added back to a company like Square, now known as Block, who's been very weak. We've added to Flywire, which is a small cap payments asset. We've added Visa and MasterCard. We, we like Visa and MasterCard because they're good examples of tech stocks that we, we perceive to have pricing power. To that end, companies like Analog Devices also we think uh, should do fine in a, in, a, in a trickier macro environment. We've been rebuilding in Japan. For the first time in quite a while, we've added into companies like Keyence um, and uh, Harmonic Drive, and Tesco. And that's a way to take advantage of the weaker yen, but also potential China reopening and the kind of trend towards manufacturing or building manufacturing resources outside of China. We've also added back to China in a kind of tentative way. Uh, we think that the, uh, the the moves by President Xi and are actually less market unfriendly than people think, um, and we're hopeful that they might actually reopen properly. So risk reward looks improved from a stock-specific uh, basis um, when we look bottom-up, but we're also conscious that the range of macro outcomes remains highly uncertain, and so we're sort of treading carefully in that those cohorts of stocks. Is there anywhere in the tech space which you would categorically not touch? Categorically is a great <laughs> question. Uh, it actually makes it an easier one to answer because categorically we don't do value tech. We won't buy into companies that the market perceives as stores of wealth, but that we believe sit on the wrong side of history. Companies that are in, on, on the wrong side of uh, trends of um, IT budget migration. So we don't do value tech. Uh, and that would sort of really for us mean companies like IBM and Oracle and SAP, companies that are good businesses, but ultimately um, are, are at sort of levels of um, uh, maturity that make growth uh, difficult. We're not interested in companies um, also, with too much debt, we're really trying to avoid companies. We always do, but we're particularly focused on this now, companies that require capital. Because obviously the market backdrop remains you know, unusually unfriendly, I think, for now. Um, and, and you know, again, we're not that interested in companies that are heavy loss makers. In the end, the, my experience of doing this for a long time has been that the tech sector ultimately is not mean reverting. And so we've experienced periods like this before where cap structures matter. And, and so we're going to be careful about the, the balance sheet positions of our businesses. Um, and at the very margin, we've been reducing our exposure to the cloud. Now, don't take that negatively, really, because we still remain extremely excited about, you know, this is the delivery mechanism for tech. And right now, cloud penetration may be in the mid-20s. We think ultimately, why couldn't it go to 80 or 90%? But at the margin, there's some risk showing up in optimization, and we could demand from some of the younger companies at Microsoft, at Amazon. So at the margin, we've been reducing those stocks. Now, Ben, you must have seen good and bad market conditions in your career. So how does 2022 stack up compared to previous rocky periods? It, it stacks up, certainly. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's been a very tricky year, as you know. Uh, I mean, in terms of the market itself, headline returns haven't been as bad as previous periods. They've obviously, you know, it's been extremely, a bit, an extremely good tape for, for equities and for tech in particular. And of course, any contrast to that will feel particularly stark. Um, you know, benchmark returns have held up because, as we've sort of mentioned already, the likes of Apple and Alphabet, Google, and even Microsoft have held up very well. Those four, those three, excuse me, bad maths, those three stocks, I think, kept account for more than 40% of our benchmark. So the experience of the average stock has been meaningfully worse than that. And in some groups, like, you know, the pandemic beneficiaries, the work-from-home cohort, the ultimate kind of concept disruption stocks have been hurt much more. You know, crypto is another good example of, you know, not my, thankfully, my day job uh, or any job of mine, but, uh, you know, Bitcoin's down 75%. So there are categories of stocks where the losses are meaningfully deeper than the headline suggests. And I think in that way, the, the market beyond the surface stocks looks a little bit more like 2001 when, you know, we had the dot-com bust um, and the loss of policymaker support that we have today. But, but, but overall, this doesn't feel like a, a fair um, a comparison to where we are today because today our largest tech companies, the ones that I've just referenced that dominate our benchmarks, dominate them because they dominate aggregate tech earnings. And the valuations that they boast today, even having you know, even been post their weakness recently, they, they still don't trade very expensive relative to the market. You know, tech in aggregate trades at 1.1 times the market. In late 1999, 2000, it traded more than 2.5 bit times the market. And at that time, tech earnings were much more capex um, related than they are today. So we're hopeful that, you know, a downturn may be less staccato than that previous period. We hope that our companies should be able to manage their costs um, against it. So not as bad as 01. So far, we don't think and hope that the great financial crisis is no template. So let's do keep that one to the side. Uh, and we could still be looking at a market that will look in the end like 2015-16, where next generation companies pull back massively relative to their, their kind of legacy peers. That proved to be a great opportunity. But we did have policymakers on our side at that time, because they were worrying like we were about deflation and not inflation. 
How would you summarise the outlook for 2023? Any sign of optimism out there as an investor? I mean, you can probably tell from the questions you've asked already, I find it quite hard to summarise anything. Um, but I would say, you know, on a one-liner that we're cautiously optimistic, it's probably a bit um, a bit asinine, but I think that's how we feel. I, I mean, look, on the positive side of the of, of, of the equation, we're, we're really encouraged that a lot of last year's excess has been worked off. We've talked about crypto, we've, NFTs, people were excited about. The IPO market has, you know, ground to a halt. This has been the worst year for tech IPO since the financial crisis, and that's against the backdrop of, you know, last year, 2021, breaking records. Um, Valuations of the broader market are already back to normal, having been you know, well ahead of their five and 10 year averages. So that's good. Tech valuations we've talked to, we were at 1.4 times the market, we're now back at 1.1. So I think a lot of the excess has been worked off. Um, and within the, the areas that we like, you know, the next generation companies, the ones that ultimately we hope drive the portfolio on a five to 10 year view, you know, a year ago, there were 25 software companies trading more than 20 times forward sales. Now we know that that, that wasn't right, but today, you know, there are none. And if you looked at the fastest growing cohort of software companies at that time, you know, on average, those companies, the ones growing more than 40%, were trading at 40 times EV to sales. That, that same group, or the companies that comprise that group today, now trade at 11 times. So there has been a very significant unwind. And if you looked at software, again, it's one of our favorite sectors, um, the median cloud software stock today trades well below the average between 2010 and 2020, like pre-pandemic. So I think the valuation starting point looks much better. There's definite upside risk. You know, the Fed, we could be at you know peak inflation. We could be at, hopefully, uh, peak Fed. Uh, we might see China reopen. Who knows what happens in Ukraine? Possi- maybe there's positives there. And there's no way that fund managers are positioned for that. You look at the fund manager surveys, uh, it's doom and gloom out there. Cash levels haven't been this high since 9-11. But I'm, a- I'm afraid we are unfortunately cognizant or we are aware of the downside risks they remain pretty significant too and i'm not prepared to you know i don't, I don't want to be a doomsayer and talk about being you know, definitively in a new investment regime of higher inflation and you know less friendly market backdrop less familiar certainly um but there are there is a risk that inflation doesn't come under control on the time frame that we'd like and that political risk escalates and so on so i just think we have to anticipate higher volatility i think it's really important that people um are sure about the investment time frame that they're looking at um, but we remain optimistic because in the end, you know, there's still a chance that this is a COVID-related hangover uh, and we hope that you know, market narratives can improve. And in the end, we remain real believers in the primacy of tech and its ability to innovate and reimagine industries. Yeah, it's interesting to see a manager quite so upbeat after a tough year for their fund. And Ben Rogoff is certainly not the only one heading into 2023 with a sense of optimism. Rebecca Young helps to run the Artemis Strategic Bond Fund, and she says bonds are now a lot more attractive after a correction seen in prices this year. Dan met up with Rebecca last week at AJ Bell's Investable Festival, a conference held in London, to find out what she had to say on the current state of bonds and what investors should expect next. So Rebecca, a lot of people with a 60-40 equity bond portfolio would have been shocked by the performance in 2022. They might think the bonds are no longer worth the while. What would you say to someone in that situation? Absolutely. The returns this year have been very difficult. I think we do need to focus and look, and look forward because actually the process of that repricing has meant that income has returned to our asset class, which is not something that as bond investors we've really been able to talk about for many years now. And it's really that sensible starting point because if we look to, for example, UK interest rate hike expectations now that are priced by the market, we've been on quite a journey. And that was a necessary journey in the market to price in what needs to be done by the Bank of England to fight those inflationary pressures. And we think the levels that we're at today with the market implying that the Bank of England will need to take rates to the mid-falls by next year. That's a sensible, reasonable starting point because that needs to be balanced with what can the UK economy likely absorb in terms of interest rate hikes. So that's an important, sensible starting point. And then if we look to credit markets, we've had a repricing in credit spreads and there are particular parts of the market, such as investment-grade credit, where we've had a meaningful repricing in credit spreads, and we're at levels now that on a historical basis look particularly attractive, and we think, believe that we're getting more than adequately compensated to take on lending to these businesses, and that comes at a time when actually corporate fundamentals are particularly strong, 
I'm very strong for the point in the cycle that we're at. So that's that's interesting. That's a sensible starting point. And I think importantly, we're getting ever closer to that zone for peak inflation across the US, Europe and the UK, our core markets. And today we can lock in sensible yields without taking without having to go down to the very low quality parts of the credit spectrum or buy very long dated bonds to achieve an attractive yield. And the example I keep coming back to is the sterling one to three year maturity triple B index here in the UK, which is a short dated investment grade index that started the year with a yield of 1.7% and as of today yields 6%. So really the starting point here is is setting up well for medium-term returns from fixed-income assets and also returns that look set to outstrip inflation over the years to come. Now, it looks like interest rates could keep rising for some time. Does that mean the bond prices have got further to fall? I think it's important to start with what what's priced into markets, what, what do valuations reflect? And as we look to the market today, they reflect an expectation that the Bank of England will continue to raise interest rates through to the mid 4% range into the middle of next year. So that is already reflected in those market valuations. And in our minds, that is a sensible sensible level to be thinking about, again, in terms of fighting inflation, but at the same time, wary of what the actual economy can absorb. So in our minds, a lot of that repricing and that a lot of that heavy lifting is is behind us. Yes, we're not at the levels in terms of the the peak for the interest rate hiking cycle that we were at and in and around the mini budget. That was over six percent. So we have come lower. But today's starting point we think is is very sensible in that respect and, and actually the repricing is largely behind us here. That's all we have time for this week. Don't miss next week's show where Dan will be talking to Lazard Portfolio Manager Steve Reeford about the outlook for inflation and why it may remain an issue for investors, even if the cost of living comes down. Until then, thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.